Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. As always, we get together on Monday morning and recap the weekend in college football. And Bruce, there was a moment Saturday night that was just epic in terms of sports TV watching. Ohio State was on the ropes against Penn State. You're at a game where that would end up being the, the most combined yards in the history of college football at Oklahoma, Texas Tech. Leonard Fournette is announcing his return to college football. He's just broken off two uh, 75-yard touchdown runs. And then at the same time, the Cubs are clinching a spot in the World Series since the 1940s. There was a lot going on. There was. Usually when I'm doing games, because I, I can't watch anything, you know, maybe the hour before when I'm on the field to, through the end. But I usually have my brother text me, you know, updates or whatever. And it was there was a flurry of stuff. At one point, he was like, Cubs are up 5 nothing." I'm like, I don't care about the Cubs. <laughs> it was like, what's up with Ohio State? Yeah. You know, you look up on the scoreboard and it's 21-7, and then all of a sudden it's flipped. And, you know, I actually thought Penn State would, would give them a pretty good game. Um, but what a huge win for James Franklin's program, given, you know, where they are right now. You know, before the season in the summer, when you're doing your preseason predictions and you look at the schedule and you play it out – I actually had that game pinpointed as Ohio State's conference loss. I just thought where it fell on the calendar, and, and it was already scheduled to be at night, and I did think Penn State was going to be improved. But then Penn State didn't show me much over the first half of the season to think they could pull that off, and I felt like Ohio State got their scare at Wisconsin and gotten it out of their system. But, you know, as it turns out, Ohio State's got some issues on offense in their passing game in particular that started to surface started to surface, frankly, Indiana, Indiana, Indiana yeah. after that Oklahoma game where JT Barrett threw four touchdown passes. Now, as you saw firsthand, <laughs> that may have had more to do with Oklahoma's horrendous uh, defense. And we'll get into the Oklahoma a little bit later. But uh, at the end of the day, two special teams gaffes did Ohio State in for the most part, including the uh, field goal block. They got returned for the go-ahead touchdown, but then it was really... It's really, you know, stunning on the last series that they that their offensive line was just so overwhelmed by Penn State. They could not protect Barrett. He gets sacked on consecutive plays. And what's strange about that is I don't feel like Ohio State's offensive line had been noticeably bad before that. I felt like they were doing fine this season. Well, I think it's the it's Billy Price and Elf line had been well, had done well. It was Isaiah Pr- Prince. Michael Jordan, who's really the young, young player, and Jamarco Jones. What what kind of puzzles me a little bit was Penn State had had three really good defensive linemen last year who moved on, you know, and I I did not think that they would not be good enough up front. But you know, Garrett Sickles, who's been in the program for a while, played really well, um, and they got a lot of heat on them. And and I some of it I think is we default, and I'm not saying we give coaches too much credit, but 
I think because we saw this happen a couple of years ago where, where it was a, you know, rebuilt offensive line struggled early against Virginia tech and Bud Foster, and then improved so much. It was almost like you gave them the benefit of the doubt and go, okay, well, elf lines there and price is there. The rest of the guys are going to pick it up because that's what Ohio state and, you know, Ed Warner's still on staff, even if he's not, you know, the only offensive line coach, but you're like, okay, this is going to, you know, it's urban Meyer. They're going to, you know, make such big improvement. And, you know, give credit to Penn State. I mean, I thought for them to play that well, that's a lot more than just, you know, a whiteout did that. Those players, I mean, that's a, you know, I think we talked about that as a podcast last week where, you know, I remember saying two years ago, Ohio State was on the ropes against against Penn State. And, it came, you know, they didn't give up any big plays. And, you know, I thought Bob Shoup did a really good job on his defensive play calling in that, and they limited them. This surprised me because I didn't think Penn State had as much talent on you know as, as they did even that group a couple of years ago yeah I love the whiteout it's a really cool thing to see especially in person but the whiteout doesn't win football games and you know there was a talent uh, differential here I, I said it many times I thought they couldn't pull this off just because they don't have the kind of roster Ohio State does Ohio State's defense did what it usually does did what it's supposed to do contain mostly contained uh, Penn State, but the offense has issues. And, and after the game, Urban Meyer got asked a lot about why Curtis Samuel didn't get more touches when he's clearly their you know, most valuable uh, weapon on offense. And JT Barrett, I, I don't know. I don't know that he's, whether he's struggling as a passer, whether, I mean, one thing that's definitely, you know, that was a concern coming into the season and has come to fruition is they just don't have a, a receiver who who scares you deep. Uh, well, that's the thing. They, I mean, you know, Mike, Michael Thomas was a was a really good possession receiver and a clutch guy last year. But I mean, that was missing after they won the national title. You know, they have Devin Smith move on. What's interesting is Ohio State. You feel like has a ton of speed on offense, and it's almost like you assume okay, they have really fast guys. Somebody should be able to be the stretch the field guy. But for whatever reason, that hasn't developed to the way we, you know, we think. Now, look, I'm sure, you know, 99% of the, you know, teams in college football would trade their skill guys for what Ohio State has. Yet that does seem to be like one element that they don't have. And I don't want to jump too far ahead to the Michigan game. But, you know, Michigan has, has better secondary guys, better defensive personnel than it, than anybody that, Ohio State has seen, and certainly better than Penn State has seen. But as I wrote about Monday morning, at, at you know we agree this was a tremendous win for Penn State and for James Franklin, and should get any of his critics off his back for a while in terms of you know yes they are heading in the right direction regardless what happens the rest of this season. Not much changed for Ohio State. You know, in the end of the day, it was season was going to come down to the Michigan game. It's still going to come down to the Michigan game. There is a you know tiebreaker scenario that they would want to avoid. In fact, what they want is they don't want Michigan to lose before then. So, so on the possibility that um, that they and Penn State end up tied uh, in a two-way tiebreaker, Ohio State could win the three-way tiebreaker. And today, to make the playoff, they needed to beat Michigan and win the Big Ten. And they still need to beat Michigan and win the Big Ten. Now, lots of people jumping off their bandwagon like crazy because they just don't think they can beat Michigan or maybe can't even win all their games before then because of the way they're playing. And I would advise against jumping to that conclusion necessarily because I have seen this movie three times before. Every time 
Ohio, uh, Urban Meyer has won a national title. They lost a game in September or October. They didn't look great on offense. And by the end of the year, and most recently this was the national title team, you know, who would have guessed early in that season that by the end of the season they would be this offensive juggernaut? I almost feel like it was better for them to get the loss out of the way now and that rather than going undefeated into the Michigan game and that it's a wake-up call, they can they can start to reevaluate a little bit what they need to do differently. You know, my opinion hasn't changed. I'm still picking Ohio State to win the Big Ten. Okay. My my opinion hasn't changed either. I'm still picking Michigan to win the Big Ten. Right. That's what I picked before. So, so I don't have any problem with that. They've been absolutely dominant. But here's what I want to bring up. Do we uh, get a little too carried away sometimes when a team is, you know, winning week in, week out like that? Here's my point. Look at the two teams' schedules to this point. Ohio State has played three top 15 teams on the road. They beat two of them. They lost to the third by a field goal. Wait, Michigan, wait, 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 wait. Okay. In your head, after what you just saw, still I get it. Do you feel like Penn State's a top 15 team? We'll see. We'll find out. Ohio State has played three Teams on the road that are now 5-2 and two and all ranked in Oklahoma, Wisconsin, and Penn State, beat two, lost to the third on a field goal. Michigan, as dominant as they have been, believe it or not, at this point in the season has only played one road game, and it was at Rutgers. How do we know that they wouldn't struggle similarly if they actually start playing some decent teams on the road? We don't know that. We, we don't. And that's why, you know, it's fun to see the speculation going in here. I don't know. And I'm going to say this, though. The reason why I did not wasn't all in on Ohio State going into the year was I thought because they were so young, I thought they'd be inconsistent. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they stumble again before they get to Michigan. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, they've got Nebraska coming. They've got Northwestern coming there this week. Three and one in the Big Ten. I expect Ohio State to win by 25. Um, they've got Nebraska coming there, but ultimately I don't want to rain on the Huskers parade at this point, but they haven't played anybody of note. Their best win is against your alma mater on the road, right? Well, they're, they're one of those teams, you know, everybody's schedule falls differently. Some team, some in Ohio state's case, they got a bunch of tough games early in, uh, Michigan, in Michigan's case, in Nebraska's case, no more so in Nebraska's case, you know, it's all coming up ahead for them. And so they are a very, they are 7-0, and and all credit to them for that. They were 5-7 and last year, so obviously they've made major strides. But I agree, they haven't played anybody yet. They're going to play Wisconsin this week, a banged-up Wisconsin team. It's on the road, and then they yeah. have to go to on the road to Columbus. So, so they, their record could look a lot different two weeks from now. Is what you're hey, can I follow up on Ohio State? Let's, let me walk down this road with you, and you tell me if you agree. So let's take your hypothetical that Ohio State runs the table and finishes the year 12 and one and beats Michigan and probably beats a top 15 other team. I'm guessing, you know, whether it's Wisconsin or Nebraska, right? Again. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Clemson runs, wins out. Please right. tell me you're not going to do the four undefeated team scenario. Why would I not? Because it's never happened in the history of college football. <laughs> Everybody always gets all worked up that there's going to be too many undefeated okay. teams. Trust me, there will not be four undefeated teams. Let me do it a little more manageably here. Clemson goes to Florida State and loses close. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now we're talking more realistic here. Yeah, Clemson goes to Florida State this weekend and loses close. Alabama, they run the table. They're going to be in. Washington runs the table. They would be in. What do we look at the ACC compared to an Ohio State? Does Ohio State definitely go in? 
You want the four teams involved here to be undefeated Alabama, undefeated Washington. Right, let's go it all the way in. Let's say West Virginia is 12 and 0. Okay. Would you take a West Virginia 12 and 0? I mean, we don't need to worry about the ACC or let's say the ACC and the SEC is whatever it is. And let's say Washington wins the Pac-12 undefeated. The one I wanted to ask you about, and I should have gotten into it easier, is 12-0 and West Virginia wins the Big 12, has not lost, versus 12-1 and Ohio State having beaten Michigan but lost to Penn State. Yeah, I mean, it's very tough to imagine a scenario where an undefeated Power 5 champ gets left out. It just is. And I know the Big 12 is weak, and West Virginia is only going to get in. By the way, this is the week that convinced me that, yes, West Virginia is going to win the Big 12, not Oklahoma. Oklahoma's defense is terrible. West Virginia's is very good. Are they going to go undefeated? I don't know. If they do, I wouldn't think they would get left out of the playoff. So but Ohio State, in that case, really doesn't control its own destiny. No. Yes, kind of. I mean, they don't control their own destiny. You don't kind of control your own destiny. You either do or you don't. Here, let me just read to you what I wrote in this column. Because first of all, there are not going to be four undefeated Power 5 teams. I probably agree with you, but just... Okay, so... I'm, I'm, con- I'm more concerned. And look, you know, I feel like whether it's Baylor or West Virginia, um, if there is an undefeated Big 12 team, I think I'm it's telling part- you if there's an undefeated Big 12 team, they'll be in. And so will any other undefeated Power 5 teams. But there would still be room for a one-loss team. There is a 0.1% chance that a 12-1 and Big Ten champion Ohio State would be left out. Is this FPI math? No, this is SLM math. They would have wins over the current AP number two team, Michigan. Number seven team, Nebraska. Maybe they won't be anywhere near seven, but they'll be ranked. Number 11, Wisconsin. And number 16, Oklahoma, plus whoever they play in the Big Ten title game. That team's not getting left out of the playoff. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. And you mentioned Clemson. Let's say Clemson. Let's say, wait, let's say Clemson runs the table. It's not a stretch. Mm-hmm. Let's say Alabama runs the table. That's certainly not a stretch. Mm-hmm. And Washington, which probably isn't going to play a top 10 team the rest of the way and has a bad non-conference, they go. And then it's West Virginia or Baylor. Now, look, they uh, both. Again, you've now done the first time in the history of college football for saying, undefeated team plus, scenario. So you've given me the Stuart Lamont Mandel logic <laughs> here of this is how it's going to play out, and on October twenty fourth, I'm just saying. I'm saying that you shouldn't be you shouldn't be doing this undefeated thing. This isn't the BCS the podcast. Do what you need to do is compare. This is the podcast. We are we are built to to turn over a lot of rock. If there are four undefeated Power Five champs, those will be the four playoff teams. Is that what you want me to say? That's what I'd like you to say. They would be the four playoff teams. End of debate. The, the question you brought up, okay, here, here's a, here's a better example. I had Louisville fans on my case on Twitter, and Clemson fans for that matter, because, uh, you know, I tweeted immediately, Ohio State, for the most part, controls its destiny. I, I think I said controls its destiny. I shouldn't have said that because of the scenario. But basically what I just said is true. And they're like, you wouldn't say that about Clemson. You wouldn't say that about Louisville. Well, no, I wouldn't because they don't play that same schedule. A one-loss Ohio State, with the schedule it's going to have played, is going to get the edge over a one-loss ACC champ. Now, I say that even though Clemson's win over Auburn is looking better every week. Yes, and give credit. Look, Clemson, it's not their fault. They, they schedule two out of their you know non-conference schedule. They have two SEC teams. It's not their fault that South Carolina you know fell apart at the end of the season. Yeah, but career. regardless, as I just rattled off, Ohio State, if they win out, and that's a big if, 
would have one, two, three, four, five wins over top 25 teams, assuming the Big Ten West champ is ranked. What would Clemson have? Uh, so we would have Auburn, three. Florida State, Louisville. We don't know what they would get in the ACC title game. They would four, but they would be undefeated. <laughs> no, if they're undefeated, they're getting in. Okay. Oh, so you're saying if it was 12 and one versus 12 and one versus 12 and one is the debate you want to have. You're right. Um, yeah. yeah. Then they wouldn't, they would have three cause they would have, let's say they lose to Florida state at Florida state. So that's why I think Ohio state, that loss didn't really impact them. And what's interesting it is did. it just didn't impact them probably as much as a lot of people would it, think. It means they have no room for error, obviously down the stretch, but what's interesting and what I wrote about is this quirk in the playoff system where you're better off losing. Ohio State was much better off losing that game if they were going to lose than running the table and losing to Michigan, right? Because that would probably cost them the division, whereas in this scenario, they can still, barring a Penn State running the table scenario, win the division. Well, you're also missing a big point of that too, which is if you lose to Michigan, you do not claim a top five victory, whereas... You know, beating Penn State is not going to resonate unless, you know, it's just you're supposed to win that game. And so Ohio State has become an interesting uh, window into the way this works. 2014, they lose to a mediocre Virginia Tech team in week two, and everybody writes them off. And even late in the season, I remember a lot of people saying, no, they can't get in. They lost to Virginia Tech. They lost to Virginia Tech. Because that was a very old school AP poll mentality where you get judged mostly by who you lost to. Now you get judged by who you beat. So they lost to Virginia Tech. They ran the table from there. They ran up a bunch of top 25 wins. They were fine. A year later, Ohio State also only lost one game. But in this case, it was to Michigan State, which then won the division instead of Ohio State. Michigan State's loss was to 5-7 and seven Nebraska. If you were comparing them by who they lost to, Ohio State would clearly get the edge. But that's not how this system works. It's who you beat. So there's this weird quirk, and people can debate whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, where basically everybody gets a mulligan. You can lose to a 5-7 and seven team. You can lose to a 6-6 six and six non-conference team, so long as you go on and beat you know, the really good teams in your division and win the division. I saw one of my uh, a guy I used to work with at ESPN tweet something out that I thought was interesting, and it was like, the fact that Ohio State can lose this game and still make the playoff, you know, it was, I, I don't want to leave, you know, take what he said too far. Maybe I'm not sure this is exactly what he meant, but it was like kind of almost lamented that in the old system, that might have knocked, you know, because it would only be two teams as opposed to four. And right. Values the regular season to some degree. How do you feel about that? That's what the BCS people are saying I for know. years. How do you feel about that, though? I disagree. I think what the playoff has done is reduced the value, win or lose, of one individual game. I can't dispute that. BCS, one loss, you might be done. That's not necessarily the case anymore. But in return, it's made a larger number of games meaningful. Do you remember the year that Auburn and Oregon uh, went to the national title game? It got to conference championship weekend, and the only games that mattered were the Auburn against a pretty bad South Carolina team in the SEC championship, and Oregon against, I believe, a 5-6 and six Oregon State team in the Civil War. And that was it. Nobody else, you know, unless one of those teams lost, which they weren't going to, that was the end of it. And now, I mean, the past 
last year we went into the conference championship game weekend with three of the four spots on the line. Uh, Oklahoma had already wrapped one up. The week, the year before, they were all on the line. So I would argue that more games are meaningful, but it's much rarer that one game is going to make or break your season. Although, as I just said, you could say Ohio State's loss to Michigan State last year definitely made or broke their season. Yeah, uh, I think that I agree with you on all those things. Let me ask you this. I went to do my Heisman Top 5 this week, dropped JT Barrett out. Who am I going to put in instead? And I'm looking at Joe Mixon, who had an insane game the other night. And I don't know why he never, never gets mentioned for this, but you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have looked this way going into the game. But if we were going to give Christian McCaffrey the award last year um, for that, you know, that all-purpose stat, Joe Mixon's averaging 207 yards of all-purpose, all-purpose yardage a game. Only Carlos Henderson from Louisiana Tech is higher. Um, I put him in there, but I also put Baker Mayfield in there. I couldn't separate them. Baker Mayfield also having a huge year. And then on top of that, as soon as I put that out there, people are like, no, you got the wrong one. It's it's D.D. Westbrook. He's having a huge, huge season. Which, if any of those guys, would you have in there? Well, I didn't have any of the three. and. Um... You know, part of me thought the most impressive player on the field was not wearing an Oklahoma jersey. It was Pat Mahomes because they couldn't – they actually got pressure on him. They could not tackle him. They could not sack him. He would just shake guys off. Uh, and there was a lot of it that felt like Pat Mahomes had, you know, referred back to some street ball stuff that, you know, that was what he did last year. And that's kind of you – know, he makes all these crazy throws against his body and, you know, off-platform throws and, and uh, with guys all around him. And it's very impressive. Now, I thought, you know, Baker averaged like 20 yards an attempt. But I, I think that's how wild the game was. When D.D. Westbrook has 200 yards receiving and is like the fourth most impressive stat line there, um, it's, it's mind-boggling. And, you know, it was – the game itself had a, had a ton of energy. to It was the most charged-up scene that I've done a sideline for by far. Part of it was Baker Mayfield's coming back. So, you you know, you w- walk out before the game, you see all these shirts with Trader on them about Baker. Uh, as soon as he takes the field, a fuck you Baker chant starts up, you know, pretty pretty clear. And then, you know, he's plays, he eats it up. You know, when I talked to him earlier this season, I had mentioned about Tech, and he was like, you know, Cliff and I and all my teammates were all good, everything. I respect those guys, and I appreciate that they had uh, – you know, they had voted on my behalf, so I get the extra eligibility in the Big 12. So, you know, I know the fans, re- they really hate me. And I think that's – he kind of likes it. He's like, that's what makes college football great. And he embraced it. And he came out and, you know, I mean, he threw seven touchdown passes as an OU record. Uh, I thought that was was pretty amazing. Now, Westbrook is interesting in that. So, he had a, a uh, pulled hamstring that bothered him in training camp and slowed him down for the first three weeks of the season. They had a bye week. And then he lit up Texas, and he has been the best player in football for the month of October. He's averaging like 200 receiving yards a game. He has 10 TDs in four games. And uh, so I had talked to their position, his position coach, Dennis Simmons, a couple of days before the game. And he said, you know, they had never, when they were at Tech, and he was with Leach the whole time, he said, we never had a receiver who was like this in terms of just, he's, he's got some of the same kind of quickness that Sterling Shepard had. But he has way better speed. He's just more explosive and and uh, go the distance guy. And he said, but when people watched him on film, 
early in the season, he goes, I don't know if they really under, you know, kind of understood how dynamic he is. So they would, you know, Texas played a certain kind of coverage and, and thought their guy could handle him. And turns out they couldn't because D.D. Brestwick was finally at 100%. And that was a lot different than what they saw on film. And he's been shredding defensive backs ever since. But getting back to your original thing on Joe Mixon. So let me go like kind of off, not do a tangent here. On Saturday morning at our production meeting for the game, you know, we discuss a lot of issues, how it's going to play out. And later in the meeting, I brought up, hey, if Joe Mixon goes for like over 300 yards, which is a possibility against Texas Tech's defense, you know, there's no Samaj P. Ryan. We've already known that Abdul Adams, a freshman running back, is going to play, but it's not like they have a ton of depth there. So, you know, he could go wild in this game. I said, I feel like at some point, do we need to bring up, you know, we're going to be talking glowingly about Joe Mixon running wild, but Joe Mixon also, you know, for a lot of people is known as the guy who hit a woman in a restaurant two years ago. And you know, obviously that's a serious issue. And that's what they, a lot of people know him for. And to ignore that, um, I think we'd look pretty bad to a lot of people. And so, you know, we had that discussion, you know, several different people around the table discussed how they felt, you know, and it ultimately came back to is, you know, are we, you know, are we shirking our, our responsibility if we completely ignore that? And so, you know, coming out of it, I said, listen, I will write something. It'll be, you know, very straight about the details because on top of it, there was some new information that had come out during the week about Mixon's case. The fact that it had been, uh, you know, it was filed in the lawsuit was filed in a court in Northern California where he's from and it had not, it had gotten relocated to Oklahoma. Also, there was some details about, uh, about whether there were, the process of whether the video was going to get shown uh, publicly or not made accessible. So that was the update. So what I, I was going to, you know, do a quick backstory on that in one of my sideline hits. And then Joe Davis, who's our play-by-play guy was going to, you know, kind of handle the update of the last week. So, well, sure enough, Joe Mixon, you know, goes off, you know, he has almost, uh, 300 yards rushing, over 100 yards receiving, you know, puts on a huge, an amazing display on the field. And the, the discussion as it went late in the second quarter, early in the third quarter is okay. Well, if Mixon goes for, you know, hits a career high, I think we got to do it then. So, and it's hard to find in a game, especially when both teams are so much back and forth, because I was going to, you know, I had written this out. I wasn't going to just wing it where, you know, you may say something you just don't, we don't want to say in retrospect because it's obviously a sensitive topic. Producer goes, hey, I'm thinking here we may have a, you know, a spot to do it. And it was like, I want to say it was late in the third quarter. And so I started into it and it's Joe, Joe Mixon made headlines at OU long before he'd ever played in a game for the Sooners, involved in a 2014 incident at a, at a restaurant where he punched a woman, where he struck a woman in the face. The woman suffered broken bones. Mixon later said through an attorney that he had acted in self-defense. As I'm, as I'm seeing, you know, going through this, I see Oklahoma's about to run, run a play. So it's like, okay, back to Joe. And then he comes back to me, uh, you know, as I finished, it was an ugly incident that for many folks has defined Joe Mixon. Sooner coaches say though, that he's actually one of the last guys they'd have expected to have been involved in something like that. Earlier this week, Bob Stoops told us that Mixon brings positive energy every day 
and has become the most popular guy on the team amongst his teammates. And we'd also, I'd also said that, you know, he did, he was suspended by OU for a season in 2014. So we kind of went into it and I felt like, you know, we handled it probably, I thought we handled it appropriately. I thought what Joe said coming out of it was well done. And, you know, we kind of went on with it. Now I saw a bunch of OU fans took issue with us bringing it up, me in particular, bringing it up, you know, that was two years ago and, uh, that wasn't the, the right time for it. And so I would ask you when it comes to, cause you're writing about Joe Mixon too. We're talking about him. I'm not saying every time Joe Mixon does something, this has to be brought up with him, you know, whether he has a good game or a bad game, but I mean, how should the media handle this? You did the right thing. It's part of his story. One way or the other, it's, you know, every player has a backstory. This is a huge part of his backstory. And I wouldn't even say backstory is not even necessarily the accurate way to put it. He's still part of an ongoing civil suit in this. So obviously it's a part of his story. One thing you said, though, is right. You cannot even tweet, oh, that was a nice run by Joe Mixon without getting back 10. Did he punch somebody on the way? You know, I'm looking at one right now from 30 minutes ago. Uh, because he, I did put him in my Heisman list. Are you going to take Mixon back off when the video comes out of him breaking that girl's jaw? Uh, two points. One, like you said, they did suspend him for a year. This is not a uh, Josh Brown situation where this happened and they haven't punished him, and and it just looks completely ignorant. I know some, you know, I know people think he should have been kicked off the team, and that's a valid point. But he was suspended for a year. I think he's part of the team and he's playing. And so if he's doing well, and like I just said, I think he's having one of the five best seasons in the country. You can't ignore that. But at the same time, this is no question part of his story. And to that person's point, I feel like OU, when they made this decision to keep him on the team, put themselves in a bit of a race against the clock. That video is going to come out. And people have seen it. The media members in Oklahoma have seen it. And it's awful, apparently. And, I mean, he punches a woman in the jaw. And if that video comes out, the level of outrage, much like when the Ray Rice video came out, is going to be through the roof. And so if you're Oklahoma right now, you're in a race against the clock, you're hoping it doesn't come out before the end of the season because I think it's uh, fairly assumed that he'll turn pro after this season. Yeah, just as a couple of footnotes onto that. Uh, one thing on, cause I was at the orange bowl. It was the only time Joe Mixon had really spoken publicly and taken questions. Cause he had to, in that setting at, you know, at media day. And it was pointed out to me by some people at o- Oklahoma. It's like, you know, his responses to some of these questions, you know, Oklahoma can coach him up, you know, as most, you know, schools do about how they handle their players and, and in their media training and whatnot. But Joe Mixon, ultimately, you know, as you said, this is part of a civil lawsuit. He has lawyers who are advising him on what he should say and how he should handle those, too. And that is going to trump what Oklahoma, you know, is going to suggest he say. Uh, The other part of this, which is, you know, as we spoke about the game, uh, coming off the field uh, after the game, I'm walking back to the truck and I happened to run into Kale Gundy, who's a longtime OU assistant. And, you know, he was talking about Mixon and he just said, he is the most talented running back we've had since I've been here. And I, that stopped me for a second. I know he's a terrific talent. That's not a, but I was like, wait, weren't you here when Adrian was here? Adrian being Adrian Peterson. He goes, 
yeah, I recruited Adrian and I recruited uh, DeMarco Murray too. He goes, Adrian is a, was, was a better ball carrier. Joe is a much better receiver. Joe's the best punt returner we have. You know, he's a 230-pound guy who's just really, really smooth, you know, gets in and out of cuts, just kind of effortless. And he goes, and he is a really good guy. He's a great kid. And I know that when people hear that, they kind of go, that doesn't square with, you know, with the biggest thing they've heard of, about him, which was, you know, this incident in this, this restaurant in Norman two years ago. Uh, he also said, you know, he just turned 20. And the fact that he, that he is that young and, you know, he turned 20, I think, in late July. Uh, my hunch is he will leave to go to the NFL. Um, I'm curious how the NFL, you know, will will view him um, just because of he has this incident. Now, I was told that's pretty much the only incident he has had. Now, it's a big incident, but it's not like this is a guy with a track record of of a lot of different things. So, no, you're not going to hear me excuse what happened or put any sort of apologist spin on it. We've talked about the Jeffrey Simmons situation. We've talked about many situations on here involving violence against women. Joe Mixon's um, should not be uh, written off in any means. And I'm not entirely surprised, though, that you got the response that you did because I do feel like TV broadcasts are treated a lot differently than print columns or even you know other form other forms of tv where you talk about the news of the day you know there is a kind of a expectation i guess that when you watch a football game you're you're going to watch the football game and a whole lot of people viewers just they want to hear about the game and not nothing else and so i understand i guess why you would have gotten some blowback on that but that's naive and to think that you wouldn't bring it up and if he and if he continues to play like he has, and especially if he ends up becoming a serious Heisman contender, um, every crew that does their game is going to have to have to have the same discussion. And I'll tell you what, if it gets to the end of the season and he's in any position to win the Heisman, and obviously we all agree at this point that would require uh, Lamar Jackson slipping up in a big way, and another guy I'm going to talk about in a second, but... Uh, you know, there's a, there's, I mean, Cam Newton didn't punch a woman. There was NCAA eligibility questions about him and people didn't vote for him that year because they felt like it was, they felt bad about it. They felt like it wasn't right to vote for him that year. That was not my story. Yeah. Like I, I hadn't thought of the Cam Newton part of this. Cam Newton was a little different in that it was a question of, was he going to be eligible or not? Um, part look, I, I remember I got some blowback cause I voted, Honey Badger and Honey Badger had missed a game. I think what was it like for a marijuana deal for one game? I don't even remember, but I, I think he sat out one game for it. We've had this question come up several years now. Johnny Manziel, nothing nearly to the extent of what has happened since then. It happened at the time he won the Heisman, but he had been arrested that summer, and some people didn't vote for him because of that. And Jameis Winston had that incident come out. I'm trying to remember the timing of that. That was before he won the Heisman, right? That that first came out. Yeah, I believe so because I remember being at the Heisman ceremony, and it was the and not ceremony the day before, and it was a very awkward handling by the Florida State PR guy who was with him. They kind of pulled him away. Jameis's attorney was actually there, and you know, to Jameis Winston's credit, he handled it that day the best. I remember in this setting, there was a bunch of us around him when he when he came to answering the questions. Um, you know, in the case of this, again, it's it's 
I also think we're in a different place in 2016 than we were in 2011 and 2012. I think there's a lot. There's you know, a lot more of, awareness and, and yeah, yeah, and outrage nationally about violence against women. So it would it would be really awkward. There's no question about that. I want to ask you about another potential Heisman candidate, a guy who I saw you have on your top five, and that's Leonard Fournette, who, when he's healthy and playing, I don't think anybody would dispute he's one of the best players in the country. But here's another unique situation. He has missed three games to injury. LSU's going to play one less game than everybody else because the uh, South Alabama game got canceled to make room for the Florida game. Can a guy win the Heisman Trophy while playing eight games? Yes, he can. This is the one guy who I think I've said for, for the last few weeks it is Lamar Jackson's Heisman to lose. This is the one guy I think who could change that. Yeah, I and agree. it's a big if. If if Leonard Fournette runs wild or even has 150 plus yards and LSU beats Alabama at home, Lamar Jackson's going to be in second place at the Heisman. That's interesting. You say that I had pretty much the exact same thought when I was we were coming up with our list of topics, and I thought to myself. On the one hand, I would think missing four games would, would really mess up a guy because your stats just aren't going to be anywhere close to what the other people's, you know, the other top running backs are, the Donnell Pumphreys and whatnot, if they play 12, 13 games. But in this case where the guy is you know, hardly an unknown, everybody knows how good he is, everybody's seen the highlights, and then you're playing number one Alabama, who's looked pretty much invincible so far, if he and everybody will be watching that game, if he goes off against Alabama and they win the game, not only do I think he can win the Heisman, I think he would pass Lamar Jackson. No matter what Lamar Jackson does, here's another reason why, again, and this is if. No, no, bias. leave it here. You want to take your SEC bias, I'm going to throw it right back at you. He would have the leanest schedule. And I'm talking lean. I mean, there will be no fat on it where other guys could, could load up. You know, what's the not he will have played basically no non-conference games because he won't have played South Alabama. He missed the Southern Miss game. And that's the one game. It was on the road. Wisconsin's got a really good defense. He ran for 138 yards, had another 38 yards receiving. It's not his fault that everybody else on his offense sucked that day. So he would have just an SEC schedule. And by the way, in SEC play, he's averaging nine yards a carry. So his schedule at the end of the season, he would have played Wisconsin, who's currently ranked, Mississippi State, who's definitely not, uh, Auburn, who is ranked, Florida, who is ranked, Ole Miss, Ole Miss was ranked, they're not going to be ranked anymore, Alabama, Arkansas was ranked, they're not ranked anymore, and A&M, who's ranked. Yes, I, you're right. And, and also, if they beat Alabama, they might be heading toward the SEC championship game, so... But I don't think they're going to beat Alabama. I, my thought on Alabama at this point is nobody's beating them. Yes, I'm with you. By the way, I did talk to Ed Ogeron on Sunday a little bit about Fournette. And he made a, what I thought was a good point. He goes, you know, he is not like what a lot of these guys want to think he is. Meaning all the people who said, yeah, he'll shut it down and he'll save himself for the NFL. He goes, they don't get, you know, he busted his ass to get back in this game. You know, it pissed him and it pissed off a lot of guys who could have left early for the NFL last year, the Tredavious Whites and Kendall Beckwith. He's like, because they know Ole Miss whooped them last year and they were not happy about that. And he goes, you, people do not get how big a deal LSU is to Fournette. He goes, he's like I am. This is his state. He came here to represent that state and it really means something to him and he feels connected. And 
he goes, that's part of why he runs so violently. Um, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty interesting perspective on a, a great talent. Uh, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that take, which is more prevalent than I would have imagined. I've gotten asked about it in radio interviews and stuff when he was still out. Should he just shut it down? Is such baloney. It's bullshit, actually. There you go, Stu. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. It's basically, if you're saying that, then you're probably not a big college football fan. You're probably a big NFL fan who views these guys solely as commodities, as draft prospects, um, not as people and, and who college students who form you know bonds with their teammates and with the school. And yes, they're thinking, I'm sure Leonard Fournette thinks about the NFL. I'm sure he thinks about his health and, his, and the amount of money he can make. But right now, I'm sure he thinks most first and foremost about trying to win the SEC title. And that may sound cheesy. And the and the people who are, you know, think that these guys are indentured servants and and that the NCAA system is so stacked against them are going to say, why should he play for free and risk his body against these guys? Well, you know what? The system is stacked in some way and that the NFL won't let you turn pro earlier than three years. But it's just insane that people think these guys should just view themselves solely as draft prospects and not care about their actual college career. If somebody actually wanted to do that, and remember people thought Clowney should do that, if somebody got halfway through their junior season and said, all right, you know, I'm just going to shut it down. I don't want to risk injury before the NFL draft. Guess what? It would hurt their draft stock. Yeah, I think you're talking about the wiring of what makes a great player as opposed to just a great talent. I think there's a difference. A, um, you know, we mentioned Alabama just in passing. So I'm going to do, I did this on Sunday in my notes column. I will do it now. Uh, yes, I was wrong on the pick of saying A&M would knock off Alabama. Join the club. I, you know, I did not feel that bad about it when it was 14-13. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm watching the game from the uh, Texas Tech press box and they get a three and out. And I'm like, this is going to be interesting because Alabama should have been way up more than 13 points early on. And then all of a sudden it's like, they get a roughing the passer and Alabama gets the ball back or gets to keep the ball and ends up scoring. And then it's third and 20 something. I'm thinking, man, if A&M just gets, just punts the ball here and sure enough, they, you know, the player gets stripped and it's a touchdown and the dam breaks. I say all that just to get to this. Uh, Jonathan Allen is now in my Heisman top five. He was the best player on the field with a lot of great players. I thought. Is it crazy? No, I don't think it's crazy, but I here's the challenge with these, these defensive players. Especially at this school where there's so many of them. He's not going to put up the same kind of stats because, you know, Tim Williams is there and Ryan Anderson's there and Reuben Foster's there. And there's like six other guys who, sh- who would probably be All-American caliber if they were at a different school. And not only that, here's why it's so hard for defensive players. You know, I took Jabil Peppers out this week, not because I suddenly think he's not a great player. Of course, he's a great player. But... He had two tackles the other day against Illinois. Now, does that mean he had a bad game? Probably not. They shut Illinois down. But unless you specifically watch him on every single snap, how would you know? So I think if it gets to the end of the year and you can, you know, it's kind of like the early playoff rankings. Only the last one matters. Only your actual ballot matters. If it gets to the end of the year and I think he's one of the three best players, so be it. But in terms of these week-to-week tracking polls that we do, it's just hard to, to, to... you know, I got to write a blurb about why I have Joe, Jabril Peppers in there every week. What am I going to write? He had, he had two tackles against Illinois. So, you know, he's not in there now. I did think about Jonathan Allen, and, and maybe he'll get in there at some point. But again, like you said, next next game it might be Tim Williams that makes all the big plays. Or, 
you know, one of the other guys, Tomlinson or one of those guys. Alabama did have a little bit of bad news that came out of that game. Eddie Jackson's out for the season, and as much as everybody thinks they're just, okay, bring in the next five-star recruit. No, he's he's one of the ones that would be harder to replace. I don't know that they're as ten, you know, as deep in that at that position as they are up front. But no, I I thought if they were gonna lose, it would be one of those two games we just got through. Now I will say the Iron Bowl all of a sudden got way more interesting. Yeah, Auburn, our man Gus Malzahn, he's back. He's a genius again. Five hundred something rushing yards the other night against Arkansas. Is he a genius now to delegating to Rhett Lashley, who probably a lot of people wanted to fire a month ago as well, and now he's taking over play calling? And At SEC Media Days, didn't he say he realized that to be a good head coach, he needs to be more of a CEO? And then they lost a couple games, and he decided he needed to go back to being a hands-on play caller, and then he and now he's back to giving it to Lashley. Hey, it's working. It looks like that the other night looked like 2013 Auburn, specifically the Missouri game in the SEC Championship. Now, does that mean they can beat Alabama? Again, I don't think so. Mm, yeah, but at least they got a lot more interesting. All right, we'll get back to the podcast in a second. But first, got a question for you guys. Have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? That actually happened to me just the other day. How awful was that? Even if you found it in five minutes, if you're like me, your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster financially, emotionally, even physically, that could take years to unwind. That's why you should protect yourself with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, you get protection from a company that's been in this business for over 20 years, one that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialist will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Guard at IdentityGuard.com slash podcast. We've gone a little long already. We're going to rapid fire some topics here. Okay. We've talked about Charlie Strong ad nauseum on here, and so I feel bad that when it, that now that we've reached this point, we're just going to kind of say it and move on. But can we agree he's done? It feels like it. They did not tackle well. I, I think we both watched that game, and it was just like, you know, credit to Kansas State. They're a well-coached team and everything. But, you know, the defense, man, they made Jesse Ertz look like Aaron Rodgers at times. It just, yeah, at this point, you know, there was uh, somebody put up this as a screen grab, and it kind of just sums it up in a nutshell. Texas through their first three games in each of Charlie Strong's three seasons, three and four, three and four, three and four. It's not working out. It's not going to work out. Now, I guess the question is, is the guy who everybody assumed to be the number one absolute wish list successor, Tom Herman, slipping in his stock at all after they got crushed by SMU the other night, and uh, Houston is now not even remotely part of the, um, you know, they're not going to win their conference probably, and they're certainly not going to be in the New York Six Conference. They may not, yeah, they probably won't even win their division because they can't. They're probably going to play in like the Boca Raton Bowl. And so the question is, I don't think Tom Herman forgot to coach in these, how to coach over these last two games. But just as it was a rapid ascension because he was only a head coach for a little over a year and suddenly he, everybody was swimming over him, because he had such a small sample size to begin with, I feel like this two-game slide could have 
kind of a similar effect in the other direction. Well, it's, it's interesting in this regard, and I don't know the answer to this. I, to me, Tom Herman at 9-3, and three, and let's say they'd win the bowl game, would be 10-3. and three. I think is still a very marketable guy if you're well, Texas. Well, if he's going to get hired by Texas, it's going to be well before the bowl game. No, I get it, but I'm just saying. The, the one thing I would go back to, though, is let's say you know they still play Louisville, which is a game that you know I think we said was diminished greatly once they mm-hmm. lost to Navy. But if they lose on national TV on a Thursday night, and I'm not saying – like I'm with you. I think Tom Herman's a terrific coach. I don't think that's the issue, whether he is 8-4 and four or 12-0. and oh, I still think he's a terrific coach and will be a big star at his next place. The thing I was thinking of is if perception-wise, and if you're selling it to these big-money Texas booster guys who aren't the most rational when it comes to college football, and they watch Houston, because they're paying attention still, they watch Houston lose at home to Louisville, who's a really good team, by the way, and then they're looking at 8-4, and four, would they have some pause about Tom Herman? If you're Texas, I think you're still going to have to make your first call to like Jimmy Sexton and go, "Hey, is there any chance Nick would come here?" Right. You know. But after that, after let's say that's out of the way, you know, I, I don't know who else would. We well, yeah, going to say, if, assuming they're not getting a Nick Saban or an Urban Meyer, or so if they're not, if they decide Tom Herman, we're not sure about him anymore. Well, then who's the other? Who's next? I don't know. I mean. I think part of the backlash, the, the quick backlash to Charlie Strong was out of, you know, kind of this this pent up enthusiasm for, well, it's just, Tom Herman's just sitting there waiting. Let's go get him. And so if it's not as obvious by the end of the season, I'm not saying they then keep Charlie Strong because I just at this point, I think it's, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to work out. Let me ask you this, because you said it and I just kind of let it go. I mean, I'll let it go. But you said it and you're like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Part of me thinks, and I don't feel as strong as I did going into Saturday afternoon, but part of me feels like if Charlie Strong got to 2017, they would be a top 10 team next year. I don't think that anymore. I've tried to give him every benefit of the doubt over the last three years because I know the mess that he inherited. Mm -hmm. And I saw with my own eyes, as we all did, what a great job he did at Louisville. We know he can coach. But for whatever reason, it's not working out there. I don't, there's nothing he's done that inspires confidence to say, well, if you just give him one more year, then he'll make it happen. And by the way, they haven't even gotten yet to, they're three and four, and they haven't even gotten yet to the two uh, undefeated Big 12 teams out there, West Virginia and Baylor. Um, just on the finish up on the, on the Texas, because I did have one other thought when you said who's out there, and it's a name I hadn't thought of until the Tom Herman stuff of the last week started making me think outside the box a little bit. Uh, that name is a former Texas coordinator who's do, having a pretty good season. That's Brian Harson. Yeah. He's also a young coach. I don't know how high he'd be up on the radar, but they are. They probably will. My hunch is they will go twelve and zero. And um, you know, he has a little more head coaching experience. And he, he, you know, he was at you Texas relatively recently. Twelve and zero, huh? Yeah, I, I do. But interesting you know, can... timing for you to bring that up. I'm not necessarily disagreeing, but. They did everything possible to blow that. BYU They've had a the bunch, you know, like they did last year when they turned it over like eight times against Utah State. They did lose that game. This one they didn't. That was one of the more interesting games of the season to me, the BYU Boise game, because of Kalani Sataki's insane play call on calling. Don't the play hey, call. you watch what you say about Kalani Sataki? If you if you besmirch his name, Lindsey Schnell will beat the shit out of you. I don't even know what that's in reference to. She but is the biggest Kalani Sataki fan 
outside of Provo. Hey, I like Kalani Sataki, but that was the dumbest decision I've seen in a long, long time. Now, I got to give him credit. He still was uh, trying to defend it at the halftime interview. He's like, and, and I kind of went into this in my Monday column. I broke it down line by line, that explanation. He said, we saw something on tape. We thought we had it. Okay. Not only did you need to gain 19 yards for the first down, but because it's a punt, he's standing at least 10 yards further back. So you saw something on film to indicate that your punter would be able to run 30 yards untouched. Number two, okay, I could see maybe breaking that out at the 50-yard line, not in your own end zone. Uh, number three, he said, we, we, we want to be aggressive. Great. Be aggressive and go for it on fourth and two at the 40. And number four, okay, that didn't end up affecting them, as he said, right? Their defense bailed them out. Boise missed the field goal. That's great. But you could also argue he made a pretty big foul up at the end when they kicked the, tried to kick the winning field goal with 13 seconds left. You can run another play, even with no timeouts. You can certainly run another play with 13 seconds left to try to get a little closer. That field goal got blocked. It, anyway, I don't know how I got to that tangent. Oh, because you said Boise's going to go undefeated. If Boise is not going to go undefeated, this week might be the week why. They got to go play a sneaky good Wyoming team. Yeah, Craig Bowles done a very, very good job. Um, can I go back to Texas one more time? So let me throw some names at you here, since we're talking about other options in addition to Tom Herman and possibly Brian Harson. This one I don't think is a fit for what Texas thinks they should be, but the year he's having, I think his stock should go way up, and he is a great offensive coach, and his defensive coordinator's done a really good job, and he's in that conference. Dana Holgerson should get a look by a lot of other people, I think. I don't think Texas would go, oh, I don't know if we can bring Dana in here, but uh, I think he's done a really good job. How do you job. think West Virginia AD Shane Lyons is feeling right about now? Because all indications were Dana was definitely on the hot seat. He was ready to run him off. And Dana Holgerson built a big house there. His kid's in high school there. I mean, they should have, I, I don't know, They, they I think they've, they've screwed that up. He's gone from hot seat to... Are they going to go undefeated? Or are they going to win the Big 12 um, in a very short amount of time? Yeah. A couple other names to keep in mind potentially for there. Uh, you think if we mentioned him for, for LSU because he coached there, if Texas called Jimbo Fisher up? He'd listen. I think he'd listen too. Um, and then a, a wild card name in this because he just had a big, big win. And he was he was in the mix for them the last time. I don't know how it would feel if he were to leave, given. But if James Franklin goes on to to go nine and three there with what he's working with at Penn State, what do you think? Whew. I mean, frankly, if I were him, I'd go take it because. And he made reference to this and many times in the interviews after this game. That's a messed up situation he's in there now. This win, hopefully, hopefully, you hope will start to mend fences, but there is still that contingent of people hung up on Joe Paw and how he got fired and all of that. And it's just very, it's got to be extremely frustrating for him. He said he had a comment, I forget where, where he said as much as he tried to look into that stuff before he got there, you just don't know the, you know, just how dramatic the effect was until he gets into that job. So, you know, ultimately I think that's somewhat unrealistic, but you never know. Is it unrealistic if he goes 10 and two? Because I'm going to read you who they have left to play. At Purdue, Iowa at home, at Indiana, at Rutgers, and a Michigan State team that's been a dud this year. Yeah, I'm not saying that they're so much better than everybody else. But that's but pretty darn win, manageable. But I guess the question is... If he goes 10-2, and two, 
with what he, you know, with no, basically no senior class and, and not much experience, um, new for, you know, first time quarterback. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility, but I also think that you're maybe, I mean, I think they'll stumble somewhere. I, I could see them losing to Iowa. I could see them lose. I could see them losing to Indiana on the road. I think maybe you're getting a little too carried away from that game as a great win. But at the end of the day, if they don't block a field goal and return for a touchdown, they didn't. They wouldn't have beaten Ohio State. They got completely dominated at Michigan. They lost a pit. So I they don't did think thump gonna, Maryland when Maryland was they undefeated. Did thump Maryland. They needed overtime to beat Minnesota. You know, I, I think the reality is that was Penn State at its best the other night, and I think you're going to see them come back to earth at some point. All right. Um, here's also what else I want to bring up. The Fresno State job is open officially. We thought it would be at some point. Tim DeRuiter is out after a really puzzling descent. You know, he had such great success with Derek Carr. And then my quick theory on that, I think that there was an element there. It was, Hey, we won 10 games early. Let's see if we can flip it and get to a bigger school. I don't think they recruited well enough to, uh, to sustain it. That was the issue last year. It's certainly the issue this year. Uh, there are some interesting names out there, starting with Jeff Tedford. He's a former Fresno standout quarterback who was an assistant there under Jim Sweeney. Did really well at, at Cal, but at the end, you know, had a three and nine year and there were academic issues, which quite honestly, usually don't undermine a head coach, but it did there. You know, if they, if they make the playoff, he'll know. And then all of a sudden I think his stock will be a lot hotter. It's the question is, will some administrators look and go, okay, we can, tr- we feel like we can trust this guy to not embarrass our program with some of the decisions he may make. Okay. Well, out of some that are even out there already, is LSU going to hire Lane Kiffin? My gut is no. I don't, I don't think even see how it could be a consideration. And, and again, Lane's doing a fantastic job at Alabama. Nobody could question that. But you know what you're going to get. You know, you're going to get the guy who missed the bus with you uh, after the championship game. You're going to get a guy who cannot get out of his own way sometimes. And I just don't think a school like LSU can overlook that. A school like Fresno State can because they're completely off the radar. Is he a little bit like Leach in that regard? Yes, a little bit. I mean, Leach has had the good fortune in his career to work at two schools where he is outside, you know, the media attention. I mean, look what happened this week with the comments about Arizona State and, you know, he got fined $10,000. We cannot have you sit at the grown-ups table at the big meal because we can't trust what you're going to do. That's the message is basically that seems to be out there. That's the message that's out there. Now, somebody might say the guy's such a great offensive coach and we want offense, and we want to win. We're willing to put up with that stuff. Are we talking about Leach, or are we talking about uh, Lane now? Lane. But Leach, I mean, I'm saying what happened this week, where he accuses them of, of some elaborate sign-stealing scheme, gets fined $10,000 by the conference, Todd Graham curses him out on the field afterward, and then he goes into his press conference and pulls a Marshawn Lynch. You think you can do that at uh, Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame? No. No, certainly not. No, no, you can't do it at most of those schools. You might be able to do it at at. I don't want to put LSU out on that, but you might be able to do it at a few, some some top twenty five. Well, if schools. you're going to do it, Washington State or Texas Tech is probably about. I the mean, right look, place to Louisville do hired Bobby Petrino. Bobby Petrino, you know, that's that's true. Um, they took a, a huge chance hiring him back. There's no question about that. Um, I mean, Lane. I don't know. I don't see. I think what he needs to do, and the reason I've been suggesting Fresno, is use that as a springboard. 
go prove for a couple years at least that you can be a head coach and not embarrass you or yourself or the school. And then an LSU type school could come calling. I just don't I think he right needs. Now. I think he needs Willie Taggart to keep to win, not lose like they did the other day, and get elevated to a bigger job because yeah. I think USF is a big enough job. And I think he, you know, he's been in, he's been lived in Tampa. I think he would be intrigued Great. enough by it. Perfect, an AAC job. Perfect, but a Power Five job. I and mean, I suppose Purdue might call. Would he want that job? Frankly, he might be better off going to Fresno, where he could maybe win the Mountain West. Um, a couple of other names that I've heard that would be possibilities there. I'll throw them at you. You tell me what you think. John Baxter, USC special teams coordinator, longtime Fresno assistant. I have no feelings about that. Okay. Uh, Tim Drevno. He's, he's Jim Harbaugh's longtime protege, offense coordinator there. He's a Southern California guy. He's from kind of near where I live. I have no feelings about that either. Ed Ogeron doesn't get the LSU job if not if they don't you know go four and you know whatever four and one over this five game stretch makes sense. I mean, obviously he spent a lot of time at USC recruiting that state. Um, I mean, by the way, I think Ed Ogeron at this point, I'm not ready to say he should be the LSU head coach. Obviously, it depends on how things go here. But anybody who's still hung up on his Ole Miss tenure just isn't paying attention. Right, the guy knows what he's doing at this point, and if LSU doesn't want to keep him then I would absolutely think, whether it's Fresno, whether it's whoever, should should snap him up as a head coach. I do not think something's not right with the world if this ends up with him being a D-line coach again next year. Well, I think, and I don't remember who it was. Like, I know Mark Slaybaugh had, you know, his second at predictions predicted he was going to get the LSU job. And I forgot who it was. It was one of our friends uh, had tweeted, I think it was watching game day, and they discussed it. And he was like, I can't believe people are actually discussing this. Oh, they're and, discussing it. I think they're kind of no, no, for I, it. no. I'm saying I think it was it was either Wolken or Schroeder. Somebody from USA Today had tweeted out. I'm trying to remember who it was and said, "I can't believe they're discussing it." I'm like, it's not that far fetched at this point. That it's certainly not that far fetched after they beat Ole Miss. That had um, been yeah. Uh, you know, and you look at it. How can you yeah. not discuss it now? I don't know what he has to do down the stretch. If he beats Alabama, they may sign the contract the next morning. Don't you think? I don't know if they would go that go that fast, but if he beats Alabama, I think there's a very very good chance if he if he gets it. If they're competitive and lose to Alabama, and they end up six and one over his games, I still think he's probably getting the job. Yeah, I think people there are rooting for him. I don't get people were kind of rooting against Les Miles by the end of it. I think they're rooting for him to get this job, but we'll see. Um, I also speaking of hey, speaking of good coaching jobs. How about uh, just a quick shout-out to our man Mike McIntyre at Colorado. Uh, the Buffs get to six wins, and they get to it on October 22nd. And now, you know, forget getting bowl eligible. I think they – what do you think? you think they end up winning the South? Yeah, this is the case where nice guys don't finish last because he mean, you know, it's a little bit like – it's not – I was going to say it's a little bit like, you know, they were terrible at the beginning when he got to San Jose State, and then within three years, they were really good. And – you know, they've had injuries, you know, they had to have the young backup quarterback play some big games. And, you know, I think one of the best hires he has, and this guy doesn't get talked about enough, was Jim Levitt. They have improved from 88th in the country in total defense last year to 11th. I know Stanford's offense is got awful right now, but they did still uh, beat them 10 to 3 at Stanford. And, uh, you know, I talked to Mike McIntyre Sunday morning, and we talked a little bit about what you just talked about with Levitt and the importance of you know, he had decided the year before that, toward the end of the year before that, that he wanted to move to a 3-4. Uh, 
and uh, talked to guys at the 49ers. That's where Levitt was, and and that ended up being, you know, clearly a good fit. But here's the other thing, and you just don't see this in college football much anymore, although actually Michigan right now is doing this. Colorado's starting defense, senior, 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 junior, senior, sophomore, senior, senior, junior, senior, senior. And most of those seniors and juniors are multi-year starters. So that makes a huge difference. I mean, you get guys that, that get that much experience, even if they struggle mightily at first, they're going to get better. And also, Stu, I love the, the touch of him going kind of Mike Riley and showing the picture of him bringing the team in and out, which led me to think that if Stu Mandel ever coached a team, it would be you holding a basket full of Arby's. Would you do that to your teammates? You're just not going to let this Arby's thing go, are you? No, no. I'm. <laughs> By the way, I now eat lunch probably two to three days a week at Jersey Mike's. Uh, they've won me over. I, I was a. It took me a long time. I was not. It took me a long time to become a convert. Uh, the number seven, the turkey and it's turkey and provolone on the menu. I get turkey and Swiss. It's a good sandwich. Uh, you know, I think Jimmy John's is still my number one chain, but they're not out here. So, um, I've, I've come to love, uh, Jersey Mike's, you know, I was going to ask you since you make fun of Arby's so much, when was the last time you had fast food? I've had Chick-fil-A. I mean, I eat Subway or those kind of things, but I have not had a McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's. Um, when I was in junior college, I've, you're going back that far, huh? Our golf, yeah. Our golf team. I remember we would get $5 or $6 a meal. And I remember we would stop at, I want to say Burger King might've been the last thing You're I had. You're telling me you have not had a fast food hamburger since junior college. No, I've been, look, I've been to a Chick-fil-A I've had, but not one of those. Mind blown. Oh no. I mean, yeah, I've been to plenty of those sandwich places. I mean, it's, it's not that, but I mean, just in terms of a fast food burger. No, I mean, I'll, I'll sit there and I, I grew up loving McDonald's and the smell of McDonald's fries, you know, but I know once I, you know, I'm afraid if I if I slip off the wagon, I'll go Staples. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, it's, for me, it's like in case of emergency when you're on the road and you're you know, there's nothing else open at that hour. You might go through the Wendy's drive-through. But anyway, all I was trying to say is that you you continue to be astounded about Arby's, and all I'm telling you is, up until a few years ago, maybe five years ago, I was under the impression that eating at Arby's was no different than eating at Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King, any of those. And America has shamed me out of it. One last thing, and th this has been a supersized podcast, speaking of fast food. Um, I've been very pleased to see some acknowledgement from a friend media critic, Richard Deitch, for one thing, but others, about FS1's uh, baseball studio show with A-Rod and Frank Thomas and Pete Rose. I think that in this playoff run with the Cubs and everything, a lot of people have taken notice. And I've even seen comparisons that maybe they've become like the baseball equivalent Inside to the Charles Barkley Turner um, NBA show. Uh, it's great because we've and we've mentioned it on the podcast here before. What you're seeing on TV, we see in the avocado room where these guys just josh each other and talk baseball. And there was a six minute clip that went viral of like literally Pete Rose, all time legend, showing a Rod, all time legend. Like how he would hold the bat and where he would stand. I mean, it went. I think it's gotten over a million views. You're right. I think that is one of the one of the reasons why we love being there on on the weekends because you have the cross sport guys. It's like being in. I, I feel like this has been kind of cheapened in the last one was, but it's like feeling it like you're in the clubhouse a little bit. And um, 
you know, because there's interest in the other sports. I mean, Frank Thomas is an awesome guy. I mean, you know, obviously he was a Hall of Fame baseball player, but you get like these kind of interactions. I just remember this year, a year ago, I may have told this story on the podcast and this is going to make the podcast longer. I apologize too. But um, I was sitting, happened to be sitting in between Pete and Frank Thomas. And I think at one, so Frank Thomas, we were watching somebody hit a grand slam and uh, Pete goes, Frank, how many grand slams did you have? And Frank didn't know. And so I quickly like Googled it and I was like, oh, you had like 11 or 16 or whatever. And Pete goes, you know how many grand slams I had? And I looked at him and I said, no idea. He goes, one. And I just said, reactively, I just said, only one. And it was almost like the words were out in thought bubbles and I could not pull them back in. I was like, you dumbass, what did you just say? I didn't mean to say like only one, you sucked. I was just surprised that, you know, the great Pete Rose only had one grand slam. You questioned a baseball accomplishment of the all-time Hitler. I didn't mean to. It just like it was just kind of came out the wrong way. And he goes, you know, he was like completely wrong. You know, has the most five-hit games in baseball history. Me, I had 170. It was like kind of when he gave me everything on the on the back of like his his history. And I was like, I I didn't mean it. You know, he was he was fine about it, but it was just like, oh, you know, I know you've said a couple of dumb things in the green room, you know, before this would be my dumbest thing that I had said. And I didn't, you know, it just kind of came out. Yep. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, even I turned away from the football for about 15 minutes the other night to watch the Cubs clinch. I can't say that I'm a Cubs fan or, you know, or really care that much about this stuff now. But when I was in college and I did still care about baseball, we used to go to, you know, we at Northwestern, you'd go down uh, as a quick ride down the L to go to Cubs game, sit in the bleachers. It was a lot of fun. Sammy Sosa was the popular guy on the team at that point. Clearly, they've uh, turned against him since then. So it is cool to see for long-suffering Cubs fans in the city of Chicago and, most importantly, for the uh, the coffers at FS1. All right. Um, if you enjoy the Audible, you should subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Maybe leave us a review while you're at it. Maybe you can comment on what I assume you've noticed is much improved sound quality for many reasons. Very happy about that. And, of course, later in the week we'll be answering your emails, so send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.